0: I'm Victor Blackwell. This is CNN Tonight. Right now, we are waiting for the Justice Department's rebuttal to Trump's legal team on the Mar-a-Lago documents, and we will talk about that later. Because at this same moment, more than 150,000 people are waiting for water in a major American city, a state capital, Jackson, Mississippi. Tonight, families there cannot be sure their toilets will flush, that there's enough water to brush their teeth, to shower, or even send their kids to school. Instead, they spent the day in lines for hours to get one case of water until the water ran out. And after spending their day like this in 90 degree temperatures, many were turned away from the distribution event at Hawkins Airfield. Now, the director of the state emergency management says that seven distribution sites will be set up by Thursday. In the meantime, people turn to stores where the shelves are nearly bare. It's very frustrating. It's, it's very frustrating to have to fight for some water. You know what I'm saying? You got to mess around, buy five cases of water just to stay hydrated.
1: It's just kind of scary because we don't know if anything's going to get done or when it's going to get done. After work, I get off late and you come
2: in the store and it's empty.
0: Water we're talking about. Let's back up and talk about how we got here. Moderate flooding in Jackson, Mississippi crippled the city's largest water facility. National Guard troops trained for the devastation of hurricanes. They've been deployed, but this is not a disaster, some once in a lifetime uh, storm. American citizens in 2022 struggling for the most basic human need is the culmination of decades of failure to fix a system that dates back to the 1950s. This failure is so foreseeable that the president mentioned Jackson by name more than a year ago.
3: Never again
4: can we allow what happened in Flint, Michigan and Jackson, Mississippi, can
5: never let it happen again.
0: Now That was part of the celebration for the Senate passage of the Infrastructure Act. It allocated billions of dollars for Mississippi, including four hundred twenty nine million dollars to improve water infrastructure. But that money is supposed to stretch across the entire state. So where is that money now? And even if Jackson gets its slice of that funding, would that be enough? I'm joined now by Jackson City Council member Aaron Banks and Cassandra Welchland. She's not only a social worker trying to help her neighbors, she's also a mother of three trying to get her family through this crisis. I thank both of you for being with me tonight. And Cassandra, let me start with you and how your family is dealing with this.
2: Uh, Thank you, Victor, for having me. Um, So our family um, has... Today, we've been, you know, working to just adjust. Um, our children are out of school, and uh, we've been having to, of course, um, buy water to uh, cook, to brush our teeth, um, to just do the basic necessities um, that we need in order just to keep our family afloat. So today was online Zoom and also feeding our kids um, at home. Um, but the water was, we had low water pressure today. Um, the water was brown when uh, we turned it on this morning. Uh, we've gotten a little bit more pressure um, as the day has gone on. Um, but it's definitely been, of course, an inconvenience, not just uh, for my family, but for families across um, the city of Jackson.
0: We've got a picture that you sent us of the water uh, that comes out of the spigot. This is at your, your bathtub the um, the the mayor says that the city right now is under a boil water advisory. If if you boiled that water, I mean, it, it, it's brown. Would you even use that water after boiling it?
2: So we have been on a boil water notice um, for almost a, a little over a month now, about a month. And um, we have not used that water to even cook with um, it. Today would be no other day. Um, We still would not use that water. We don't boil it to do anything with it uh, because um, grit is in the water, and so we will not use it. And so we've been, you know, going to the store, you know, buying water, Um, and not just my family, but also our organization, the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable. How we've been serving the community um, and have begun to put our boots on the ground with other partners. To be able to serve the community. So, no, we will not use that water. And today I had to remind my kids: you know, don't use the water to brush your teeth. You need to get a bottle of water. And so we have bottles of water in their restrooms um, mm. because grit comes out of it. And over the weekend, it was even worse. It was brown. And this is even before, um, you know, the cresting of the reservoir happened. So it's a pretty it's a real inconvenience and it is a public safety issue, um, particularly when you're talking about our children and you're talking about, you know, elders in the community. It's a really bad public safety issue um, for not just my family, but for all of our families um, in Jackson, Mississippi.
0: Yeah. Beyond consuming it or using to brush your teeth. I mean, I I couldn't imagine anybody would want to bathe in that water that we saw in the bathtub. Councilman, let me come to you. And no community should have to rely on the water we just showed and not have, you know, reliable, clean, potable water. But I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that this is a majority black city, 82 percent there in Jackson. Um, Tell me what you're seeing and how this is impacting the people uh, that, that you represent
3: yeah uh first of all, I appreciate it. Look it is um very hard to bear. This is not our first time here. Two years ago, February, we had a winter storm where uh city of Jackson went around four weeks without water uh, but however, the South Jackson area, which is the ward that I represent, went six weeks to seven weeks without any water at all uh and since that time, there has not been a month where we have not experience no flow to low flow in certain areas in South Jackson. And so it's very frustrating. I would say that the citizens here are resilient because all hands step up to the plate as always to help make sure that we're serving our vulnerable communities uh, and that we're able to provide non-potable and potable water when we hit this. So we're used to, uh, you know, the emergency. The sad part about it is, and the sad reality is this is becoming somewhat of a norm. And we deserve a better quality of life uh, right here in the capital city of Jackson, Mississippi. So what's the plan?
0: Um, I know there was the, a water distribution today. We talked about it, several hundred cases of water. At the end of it, cars had to just make a U-turn and leave because there was none left. What are you going to do for the, the people who live there for the next several days or weeks until this is solved?
3: So, uh, look, it, it will be the same that we did in 2020. Um, since last night, around 7.30, there was a 6,000-gallon uh, tanker deployed in my ward at Forrester High School uh, that is just providing flushing water. One of the first things that we realized is that people need to be able to flush uh, because that be- that that becomes a problem uh, as far as making sure that, you know, people have that quality of life that they need, uh, especially when school is out, children are at home, you know, people are at home. And so we wanted to provide uh, those gallons of water and those tankers uh, throughout Ward 6 to make sure that they're able to flush. On top of that, we are uh, talking with partners, uh, people like World Central Kitchen, uh, people like my caucus, National Black Caucus, to try to get help in uh, to bring that bottled water. The city of Jackson has stepped up and providing pallets so that we could continue that. Uh, but, you know, at the end of the day, we need a fix. And the same attention that was given to Flint, Michigan, we need that same attention given to Jackson. We need to make sure that these resources that need to come to this city, instead of them going to the state, we need to make sure that our legislators on the federal level and that there's some type of executive authority to make sure that it comes directly to this city so that we can do what we need to do, even if that means getting a new water plant at OB Curtis and J.H. Field.
2: And I'll That's, add to that, Victor, one yeah. of the things that, you know, tomorrow morning we have... Um, of course, partner, the Mississippi Black Women's Roundtable, have partnered uh, with New Horizon Church and other partners, um, People's Advocacy Institute. And so tomorrow morning, uh, we will be having um, truckloads of water that's going to be coming every day to be able to distribute to communities. Um, Again, one of the things that Aaron talked about is, and you said, we are um, 80% black community. But also a third of those folks live in poverty and many of our children are on free and reduced lunch. And so when we talk about who's impacted those families, we're talking about jobs, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they have to stay at home, you know, with their families. Um, and so we're talking about child care. So not only are we still coming out of COVID, which is an economic um, security, you know, issue uh, mm-hmm. for so many families, we're still here trying to provide those kinds of resources. People don't have $1,000 saved up to be able to meet the crises that is before us. And so community has been doing this um, for two years now, yeah. Yeah. coming to our own rescue. And so we will continue to do that. But definitely, as Aaron said, the state must kick in the money, the resources, so that we can get our infrastructure yeah. fixed.
0: There certainly needs to be a fix. I mean, every human deserves clean water and the people there in Jackson pay taxes, so they're paying for that, that water. Councilman Aaron Banks, Cassandra Welchland, I uh, thank you both. Yes, sir. Are much more thank on this so growing uh, water emergency ahead. How does a capital in the United States of America have no safe running water to drink in 2022? And how does this crisis get resolved? And we're waiting for a big filing from the Justice Department soon about the search of Donald Trump's home. What new details might be revealed? We'll talk about that ahead. An American city where 150,000 people cannot flush the toilet. It's a disaster too many people in Jackson, Mississippi, knew was coming. Two years ago, the city's water failed an EPA inspection. And then last year, the EPA and the city of Jackson agreed to work together to make needed improvements. And still, since February 2021, listen to this, people in Jackson have been under some sort of a boil water notice at least four times, according to the city's website. And as recently as last month, city officials found cause for concern about lead and copper in routine water samples from residents' taps. I'm joined now by former Congresswoman Abby Finkenauer and former special assistant to George W. Bush, Scott Jennings. And before there was Jackson, there was Flint. CNN's Sarah Seidner has covered the struggles there after most of the national media moved on. Uh, Thank you all for being here. And Sarah, let me start with you, because it is unimaginable that we are here (laughs) again, with a major city, and I'm going to say it again, a, a major black city in America that is struggling just to get clean drinking water.
5: That's right. I think it isn't unimaginable, though. Mm. I think it is probable. And if you look at some of the studies, there was one out of Texas A&M that said, you know, if there is a significant poverty in a place, and if the place happens to be non-white, the likelihood of having water issues goes way up. Oh. And so when you think about that and what has happened here, these are just two examples. There are places in Alabama, in Louisiana, in Texas, uh, where this is happening or something similar to this has been happening. The boil water orders that go on and on and on. And people in the black communities, you know, Flint was one of those major examples that was just so egregious um, that the world stood up and, and listened and they watched what was happening. And they are still dealing with issues. And one of the big issues is, particularly in the black community, they do not trust the water. Yeah. People are still going and getting bottled water because they know that lead can lead to long years of problems in their children difficulties learning, hyperactivity, all kinds of things, cancer risk goes up. And so because of that, there is a huge distrust and a warranted one by folks in the black communities, particularly in poor neighborhoods. Mm.
0: Abby, how did we get here with the two of the biggest federal spending bills in U.S. history Mm -hmm. have not gotten Jackson where it needs to be?
1: Well, I'd be asking, what has Governor Tate been doing. And honestly, we know what Governor Tate's been doing. He's been walking around the state talking about critical race theory in bathrooms instead of doing his dang job as the governor of that state. In April this actual year in 2022, they passed and he signed a 524 million dollar tax cut when now his people don't even have drinking water. And by the way, this it's not like he doesn't know, right? This is the capital of Mississippi, he knows. And what has he done? Look, they passed the infrastructure bill, which by the way, only one of Mississippi senators actually voted for, and only one of their congresspersons did. The only Democrat sitting there actually voted to bring in that money. But it also relies on the state and the localities to do their jobs and bring those dollars into the communities who need them. The EPA has been trying to work with the city, um, yet there's still been holdups, even when it comes to hiring people for the water facility itself to keep it running. They knew it was happening. The fact they've been under a a boil warning for the last month is absurd, that this is where we are right now. But again, it is when public servants fail to do their dang jobs and can't even do the basics. Scott? Scott?
6: Yeah, I think this is one of the worst-run cities in America. I mean, you're upset with Governor Reeves, uh, but this mayor and this city council have utterly failed. uh, Councilman Banks, we had on him. He's been in office since 2017. They've known about the water problems in Jackson for quite some time. And I think the infrastructure bill that passed, according to what I learned from the governor's office today, is actually going to end up funding some of the fixes in Jackson along with some state money. It does take time to do that. But I I think local leadership matters. It's mayors and city councils that manage things like water, uh, and they have utterly failed the people of Jackson. They've also had issues there with their police department. They've had issues there with garbage collection. There's just been a real quality of life degradation, and I think it's at the, at the feet of the mayor and the city council. You
0: think that the, the governor has no responsibility here?
6: I think the governor has stepped in in an unprecedented situation. They have essentially taken over, and what I learned today is that the governor's office, a Republican, and the federal uh, presidential administration run by a Democrat are actually working together here. So you get three layers of government, federal, state and local, federal and state in a bipartisan way have stepped in together. Abby's right. The EPA is involved. The EPA has been after the city of Jackson for years on maintenance and staffing, and they've not done their job in the city. But Governor Reeves and Joe Biden's EPA Working in a bipartisan fashion are are actually functioning properly at the moment. But that city has I, got to step up. And
1: I hear you to an extent here, but come on, $524 million tax cut when this is happening in the capital city of Jackson, Mississippi. Why hasn't the state government helped to do their actual jobs? Who, I mean, who, who, this do is the the, who, who do you think runs do the actual problem? Who do you think runs the water utility? Who do you think these localities actually <laughs> the get the funding, though? This is how it works. It is on states to help step up to work with the federal government and to work with these localities. They knew it was happening. They've watched it happen. And yet they just haven't cared or done enough. And that's sad that this is the United States of America and this continues to happen. I mean, the last thing I'll say is this. I represented Iowa when the derecho hit. It was horrific. Um, It was a natural disaster nobody saw coming and there I was just trying to feed my people literally and within 45 minutes we were out of food. It was the worst feeling I've ever had in my life. Uh, Changed me as a public servant, changed me as a human and the idea that if I could have known, right, I would have, if I had any idea that I could have stopped it, I would have done everything I could to have stopped that. The governor knew this was coming, the mayor knew this was coming and what happened. They didn't do their dang jobs.
0: Scott, let me ask you about this, because there was this last-minute change to Senate Bill 2822 uh, there in Mississippi um, about how the state would spend COVID relief money uh, on water. It forces Jackson, and only Jackson, to get state approval before spending money on water and sewer uh, also sets a deadline uh, to spend the money or lose it. Why, Set that for only Jackson. If it's the, the, the mayor's responsibility, mm-hmm. then uh, allow him, give him the resources to, to then do it.
6: Yeah, uh, to be candid with you, I don't know. Not, not familiar with the particulars of the bill. I, I do think the state government, because it's in Jackson, has had a fraught relationship with the local leadership in Jackson. I mean, look, I... I think municipal issues like water, garbage, police, I mean, these things are ultimately the job of the mayor and the city council. And although the state government is there, it's pretty unprecedented for the state government to have to take over
0: the major functions of a city, which is essentially what's happening now. Hmm. All right. Uh, Sarah, thank you for being with us. Abby uh, and Scott, stick with us. There's a a big election uh, fight intensifying in Pennsylvania exactly 10 weeks before the midterms. Another Trump-Biden duel of sorts, both trying to tip the scales in the crucial battleground for their parties. Who will win out this time? That's next. Just how critical is Pennsylvania to Democrats' midterm hopes? President Biden is making three stops there over the next seven days, and he's visited the state 14 times since taking office. Today, he spoke in Wilkes-Barre, which is home to one of the nation's biggest swing districts. Donald Trump will be there on Saturday as he tries to bolster three of his chosen candidates, including Republican Senate candidate Mehmet Oz, who is locked in this tight and now bitter race with Democratic rival John Fetterman. Let's bring in our expert now on Pennsylvania politics, really everything Pennsylvania. Michael Smirconish. Uh Michael, good to see you. Um, let's start here with what we're just getting in, that John Fetterman uh, will not attend a planned debate there. Uh, his campaign cited his recovery uh, from this stroke. How does that inability to to debate Dr. Oz play into this narrative that Oz has created that he's just not physically up to the job?
4: Good evening, Victor. Now I know how it feels to live in Iowa or New Hampshire with all this attention being heaped on Pennsylvania as we approach Labor Day weekend, which you know is the traditional beginning of the fall campaign. The answer to your question is that from the Oz perspective, this is a very sensitive issue and they've got to tread very lightly. There was an Oz spokesperson who I think took a cheap shot at Fetterman over his health in a vegetable reference. Um, By the same token, I think it's fair to wonder whether Fetterman is 100 percent or whether he's going to make a full recovery from that stroke that he had three months ago. He's really been shielded from the media thus far. One of the interviews that he did was with closed captioning. He's done two public events. He spoke for about 10 minutes at one of them and four minutes at another. So, you know, people rightfully, I think, want to know how's he doing? But Oz needs to be very careful in how he handles that issue.
0: Mm. How do you think that uh, the Fetterman campaign is handling this recovery? Look, nobody plans, obviously, for a medical emergency like this. You have to then react to it. But how do you think the campaign is doing?
4: I think that they were not initially forthcoming about exactly what had transpired. That's pretty well documented. The media campaign that he's running, both paid media on television and social media, is exceptional. I mean, it's it's really, it's really struck a chord with people all across the country. But in the end, I think he's going to have to come out and play. In the end, I don't think he can win the campaign, Fetterman, by simply running an organized social media or paid media campaign.
0: Mm. Michael, is there any evidence that this um, statement that you just referenced from his campaign that, that said, you know, if- if John Fetterman had ever eaten a vegetable in his life, then maybe he wouldn't have had a stroke. That that's costing him in parts of Pennsylvania where otherwise he wouldn't be struggling. Uh, is is this creating some problems for Dr. Oz?
4: You know, it's it's hard to know, Victor. I've looked at all the polls on this race and depending on which of those you believe, you could make the argument that both the Senate race and the gubernatorial race are narrowing. About a month ago, it looked like both Josh Shapiro, who's the Democratic nominee for governor, and John Fetterman, who's the Democratic nominee for the Senate, had double-digit leads over Doug Mastriano and Dr. Oz. Recently, both Trafalgar and Emerson have come out just in the last 48, 72 hours and have said that the races are really a three- to four-point race, which is more what I would expect in Pennsylvania, given, as you know, that it's a very purple state. So 10 weeks left to go, that's an eternity. In a year that seemingly is a strong year for Republicans, at least we think so, in Pennsylvania, at least, the Democrats seem to have the edge.
0: What do you make of President Biden's... um Three stops in seven days, Wiltsbury, Pittsburgh, Philadelphia, uh, uh, over the next uh, couple of days.
4: I think he's got roots here. As you know, he was born and and spent some of his formative years in Scranton. I think Pennsylvania could be the whole ball of wax. Mm. I mean, Senate control, 50-50 with the vice president breaking the ties. In this case, it's a Republican, Pat Toomey, who's hanging it up. So, you know, this is potentially the easiest pickup for Democrats to take control of the United States Senate. I also think it's accessible. I mean, to be candid, I think it's accessible from Washington. It's accessible from Rehoboth Beach. So he can probably spend the weekend in Delaware at his beach house and still make it to Pittsburgh for a Labor Day event.
0: All right. Michael Smirkanish. again, my go-to for anything about Pennsylvania. Good to see you.
4: Thanks, Victor. All right. You too.
0: Texas Governor Greg Abbott has spent or sent rather approximately 9000 migrants on buses to New York and Washington, D.C. since April. And just in tonight, we have new details about how much this political battle is costing the taxpayers in Texas. CNN's Polo Sandoval is here with the brand new reporting. Um, So what do you know?
7: Victor, it's taken us weeks to get to this point, to get an answer from state officials as far as how much this controversial border busing plan that Governor Abbott announced back in April is costing taxpayers. And now these documents showing these numbers here, just under $13 million, and that is as of August 19th. Now, the the numbers are fairly conflicting in terms of how many migrants have actually been sent from the southern border to the northeast in the cities of Washington and New York. But if you do the math, that's still calculating at about... $1,400 Fourteen hundred dollars a person. Now, I'm from the from a border region myself. Uh, even looked at flights and what would it would what it would cost me to fly from South Texas to New York tomorrow. It's costing about five hundred dollars. So it certainly raises some serious questions about the practical the practicality, the cost effectiveness. Greg Abbott, when he made this announcement that he planned to basically take the border to the doorstep of lawmakers in Washington and to Eric Adams' doorstep here in New York, made it very clear that he knew that this was not going to come cheap. But at the same time, it'll be interesting to find out once we do get a response, if we get a response from Greg Abbott, if he expected this. uh, Because, again, if you do the math, it just does not add up when it comes to the amount of money that the state of Texas is spending. Uh, these are figures that were provided to me by the Texas Division of Emergency Management, and this was in response to a request for information that I filed weeks ago. And again, laying out that clear number, and it's uh, important to point out that likely continues to grow tonight as critics continue to say that this is simply the cost of making a political point as Governor Abbott seeks re-election. Uh, He maintains, however, from the start that this is meant to provide some relief to some of those communities along the border that have been burdened with this increased number of migrants. And we should also mention that Texas is not alone. Arizona also implementing a similar program. And we're in the process of hopefully obtaining similar uh, documents and similar uh, figures from Arizona as well.
0: Control room, put that uh, that slate back up with the numbers. $1,400 ahead for a bus ride here. $12.7 million uh, for what is essentially is a a political stunt from the governor. Um, Polo says a flight is $500. Greyhound will get you there for $295. Polo Sandoval with the reporting for us tonight. Thank you, Polo. Thanks, Victor. We're expecting a major filing from the Justice Department. It's in response to the request by Donald Trump's lawyers for a special master to oversee the review of items that were retrieved from Mar-a-Lago. A A lot of new details could come out about the search, and the judge who ordered this specifically asked for more details. So keep it right here on CNN Tonight. New information about the FBI search of Mar-a-Lago is about to drop. At any moment, the Justice Department will file its response to the Trump team's request for a special master. That's the third party to oversee evidence collected from the ex-president's primary home. Judge Eileen Cannon of the Southern District of Florida set today's deadline, and she has already signaled her, as she called it, preliminary intent to grant this request. But will she? She did grant the DOJ permission to double the size of its brief if needed to, quote, adequately address the legal and factual issues raised by donald trump's filings let's bring in now former federal prosecutor shan wu miles taylor a former trump administration homeland security official and scott jennings is back with us uh shan let me start with you um these legal and factual issues uh that they say uh, need to be addressed what's that mean to you on what we should expect to see well, to me, it's a good sign that
8: they ask for more page length. Anytime a lawyer asks for more room to write, that means they think they have something to say.
0: Makes our job harder. Yeah, that's right. right yeah, but exactly. still more to say. But hey, billable hours, that's right. right? That's right.
1: You got it.
8: Yeah. Uh, they need, in my opinion, to push back really hard against this. I mean, this is basically a judge trying to meddle in a criminal investigation, and it sets a very bad precedent. So I think there's a lot of room for them to attack The idea that's been pushed by Trump's lawyers, but it's really important to attack it because it sets a really dangerous precedent, in my view. Why do you say meddling Mm -hmm. here that Mm -hmm. this judge is, you think the judge is going too far? Yeah, I, I think she's basically inserting herself into a criminal investigation. So judges typically oversee cases, not investigations. Caveat, grand jury, technically, chief judge, they bring issues to them. This is not a case yet. It's a search warrant. A magistrate approved it. And her taking on the case is really out of line. I mean, I had some hopes when she asked them to flesh it out, explain why it's coming to me, but now she's signaled her intention to grant it, and uh, it's just not appropriate. They don't even use special masters for this type of
0: issue, usually. Okay.
6: I, well, first of all, I'm not a lawyer, but I have seen several episodes of Law & Order, CSI, and other shows, so uh, let right. me just weigh okay. in. I, <laughs> I, look, i it strikes me that the Trump team has asked for something here because they think it's good for their defense of this sure. issue. And so, if you're the Department of Justice and you're trying to and this is a question for you and you're trying to engender public confidence that you're treating Donald Trump fairly when you're being accused of treating him unfairly, is there a harm in granting this request? I mean, could it is there anything about a special master that would harm their ability to do what they want to do
8: here? Oh, there's enormous potential for the harm. So just one hypothetical, right? They already have an FBI team reviewing to say these things may be privileged, so we won't have the investigators look at them. Let's say the special master looks at it and says, I disagree. <laughs> I think you've looked at things that are improper. Who's going to resolve that? Well, they got to litigate that. It can drag it on forever. And it sets a precedent for using civil cases to jam up a criminal case, which I think is a real
3: problem.
9: Well, no. as, as as another non-lawyer at the table, <laughs> but I stayed at a Holiday Inn Express. <laughs> third, uh, third. third. A yeah. yes. and, 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 and Sean, I want you to d- dissect my argument and destroy it if you disagree with it. But, but I think at least politically, uh, you know, putting aside the criminal piece politically, I don't think this is great news for Trump. We don't know what's in these documents that are coming out yet tonight. But anytime the Justice Department is getting... Uh, an opportunity to go back in front of the judge, ask for more page length, talk about this in more detail. Uh, it, it's another opportunity for them to show this is a very serious criminal investigation. I mean, Trump's entire defense right now is that this is politicized. And they've got another opportunity in a very disciplined, methodical way to show that this is a real case, which, by the way, is being overseen by an FBI with a director who I worked with during the Trump administration, a director that Donald Trump himself appointed. So I think the Justice Department has got more opportunities here, while it may not be what they want, to at least go out there and say what they are doing in a very defensible way that looks political rather than what Trump is trying to
0: say it is. Yeah. Scott, let me borrow your mm-hmm. question. I'm going to bring it over here to a, a national security context. Um, uh, the appointment of a special master could create some delay. Um, in the context of national security, does that potentially offer some harm if this is stretched out over days, weeks, months, as they're looking through these documents determining what the the fbi what the doj can look at there are two
9: elements of national security harm here one is the actual information that sat relatively unsecured at the ex president's property for an extended period of time actually 3 Three potential points of harm. There was that one, okay, which is what this case is all about. Second potential avenue of harm here is the actual information that's going to have to be considered potentially in the courts. It's going to be hard to prosecute a case like this without some of this information potentially coming out to more people. This is highly controlled information from human intelligence sources, signals intelligence sources, and often in cases like this, it's the government's default to not want to declassify that information for these cases. So that's another potential problem. But the third bigger aspect of national security harm here is the political intimidation and violence that's building around this case. A poll just came out today that showed that 50% of strong Republicans said they feel like in the next 10 years, civil war is likely. That's a YouGov economist poll. 50%. That's really scary stuff. And that attitude is being fanned by the President's allies. Uh, you know, Ted Cruz just came out and said he thinks the FBI should be defunded. That sort of rhetoric is ginning up a really potentially combustible political environment.
6: If, if I may push back on that, though, it strikes me that there is, and I agree, a healthy amount of skepticism of what's happening here among Republicans uh, in this case against Donald Trump. So it, it just strikes me that the Department of Justice ought to not allow for any openings for. Republicans or Trump supporters or even the former president himself to say, see, they're, they're putting their thumb on the scale against me. They're not allowing me to mount whatever defense that I should be able to mount. And the other thing I think they could do, and we've talked about it before, is a little transparency here I think would go a long way. And I recognize their national security documents. You can't just uh, put them out, I guess. But you could show them to the gang of eight in Congress or the intelligence committees. And then those people who have clearance, and we trust them to look at documents all the time, could come out and reassure their constituents and the American people that yes this is a serious case the documents we saw are of a nature that would warrant you know the resources that are being put into it i think i think doing these things would would create an at least the appearance that everything is being done here to reassure people that this isn't just a political hit job
0: but what about the degree of transparency up to this point i mean we're seeing parts of the affidavit the property receipt was released the search warrant details were released it, in many ways, th- this is unprecedented transparency. Well, we don't right. know what's in the documents. I mean, we've had anonymous. But you're not supposed to
6: know because they're top secret. I, I understand, mm-hmm. but I'm just I'm just telling you the political reality of what yeah. the average Republican yeah. would say is there's a reason that they're we, they're not telling us what's in there because
9: whatever fill and, in the blank. I, I, I like to parry and joust with Scott Jennings. It's one of my favorite things to disagree <laughs> with him, yeah. but sadly. I, I have to agree with him on this. I, I think the Why just, are you sad?
6: I, yeah,
8: I, <laughs> this I should just, be a happy moment I for you,
6: Miles. I just love to hate you, Scott. You can come, you can come back to the Republicans <laughs> that's anytime that's you feel that's like
9: that's it. Right. <laughs> Inviting me across the table. Uh, but But I will agree with Scott here, which is that, look, the Justice Department's default is probably, no, they don't want a special master. They think their judgment is right about what documents they need to use and not. However, I think there is a silver lining here for the Justice Department to say, look, we don't want a special master. But if you do it, you know, here's some some parameters you could prescribe around it. And it will look like DOJ is saying we got nothing to hide here. This is a political. Yeah. Let someone neutral come in to decide which document should be in it and without it. And, and I trust that that process will be operated
0: in a very fair and transparent manner. All right, We got a, a little over two hours until this deadline for the filing to come in. Everybody stick around. We've got more to talk about right after this. All right, we're just moments away from the DOJ filing its response to the Trump team's request for a special master. Uh, Miles Taylor, Scott Jennings, Shan Wu are back with me now. Shan, let me start with you. Um, the Trump team, the legal team, has been criticized immediately after the portions of the affidavit uh, were uh, released. People close to him said he's got to beef up this legal team. He has now done that with Chris Kite, former Florida Solicitor General. Um, but really, it doesn't matter who's on the team If your client isn't being honest with you or if they're not listening to your advice. That's exactly right. I mean, from all reports, he's got to be a very nightmarish kind of client to have. I
8: mean, Evan Corcoran, former federal prosecutor, former colleague of mine, I have great respect for him. Uh, I think they're in a very tough spot, particularly with having represented the DOJ that, hey, nothing more here. And then it turns out that there is more there. They either have to disavow their client, saying they're misled, which they really don't want to do as lawyers. Or they're going to be questioned themselves as to whether they were complicit. That's really an impossible situation to be in. And really, they should be withdrawing at this point. Um, and like you said, it doesn't matter what lawyer
0: you have. If the client won't listen to you, you're not going to, to do anything with it. Chris a uh, former Florida Solicitor General, won four cases before the U.S. Supreme Court. He's got close ties to uh, Florida Governor DeSantis, served on his transition team. What's this mean to you?
6: Well, two things you want to have in life that are good, a good barber and a good lawyer. And you want to listen to them both. <laughs> I don't need the barber as much. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but uh, in this case, I think they clearly upgraded uh, yeah. on their legal team. So if you're uh, somebody who thinks that Donald Trump needs better legal advice and ought to listen to it, this sounds like a, uh, a positive development for him. But, but he has been known as a bit of a venue shopper, you know, whether it's right. law, politics, uh, whatever. You know, he's, he's always looking for someone to agree with his instincts. So well, I guess we'll see. we'll see how this person does. Uh, you know, Trump, Trump's had some interesting lawyers that, over time, that have been more TV personalities than actual lawyers, and they've gotten him in trouble. Literal this, 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 TV personalities. Yeah, this
9: guy seems like a real lawyer. So yeah. Good thing. Yeah. I mean, w- one of the lawyers that he went into this with uh, was a former or current ON contributor. I mean, you Christina know, that's— Christina Yeah, the, yeah. There, there was a B team he was going into this with. And look, I know Christina. She's actually a very nice person, a very compassionate person, not the person I would want defending me in a federal case like this. Um, But but I go back to what Sean just said about uh, the client himself. Let's look at what the client just did in the past 24 hours, even by Trump's standards. He went on one of the most off the rails social media benders we've seen the ex-president do in a long time, maybe ever. I think we have it. Yeah, here. Here it is. Yeah, it's oh it's, uh, I wouldn't encourage anyone to scroll through it, but you know, when you look at at some of the details in here, he wants the 2020 election rerun, he wants to be named president again, he promoted QAnon conspiracy theories in almost the most direct way he ever has. I mean, this this was really a vortex for Republicans. This is really problematic. Elected Republicans have two really bad options right now. They can either continue to stand behind the ex-president and get sucked into his vortex, or they can oppose him. And as we saw in this social media feed, become the target of his ire for being rhinos. Either way, he's going to drag them down with this going into the midterms. Uh, You know, I'm an ex-Republican now. If I was still in the party, I would say this is the last thing we want going into the midterms. We want to just disassociate from Donald Trump. But look, he's like this magically reappearing hand grenade. If they don't throw him away, he's going to keep blowing up in their faces. And not just in the midterms. As we were talking about during the break, this is going to extend well beyond the midterms into 2023. This case could go potentially into 2024. So it's a big and continuing Headache for the Republican Party. That would be a huge issue, by the way,
6: if this were still going on when the presidential campaign starts, if Donald Trump runs. I mean, the USA Today survey out this week, I think 59% of Republicans said they wanted him to run. He's a clear front runner, could, could be the nominee. I expect he'll have opposition, but he's going to be the, the front runner for this. If this case is still going on, it's a tricky thing, I think, for the government, for the Department of Justice, which works for Joe Biden, who says he's running for re-election that'll be investigating a case against Donald Trump, who's also, I mean, it, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I mean, I, I know the case would have started before the campaign, but it'll right, still be going on. Right.
8: But um, I think the point here for DOJ and Garland is Garland's got to walk the walk and, walk and do the talk that he said he was going to do, which right. is he wants to bring back the integrity, the respect to the department, and he says, zero politics here. Now, frankly, I wish he'd been more transparent in the beginning. I mean, I think it would have been fine to say they're looking at Trump doesn't mean that We're charging him or anything like that. But the complete radio silence, I think, was a little bit problematic. Now, however, he's kind of in the middle. He's shown a little bit, obviously due to enormous public pressure over this. And now the question becomes, is it a slippery slope? You start to show more and more in an effort to make sure that politically it doesn't look too bad. And prosecutions are not supposed to be political. And the way to stay away from that is just
0: prosecute the case. Don't worry about politics all right we're just about two hours away from this deadline for this filing from the doj uh shan miles scott thank you all all right that's it for us tonight i'm victor blackwell be sure to join allison camarada and me on cnn newsroom tomorrow at 2 p.m eastern i'll be back here tomorrow night at nine don lemon tonight starts right now